This is Soundmaking, a podcast made by Hogan Stenner and myself, Matthew Shlomovitz. Each episode of Soundmaking features a composer or performer discussing the how and why of music they've created. For this episode of Soundmaking, we met with singer Lynn Andrea Fuleset from the vocal ensemble Trio Medieval and composer David Lang to talk about his piece just after Song of Songs, which was released on Louth Contemporary Music Society in 2015. The piece was written for the female voices of Trio Medieval, as well as for viola, cello and percussion performed by the group Saltarello, led by Garth Knox. Due to an objection from the Louth record label, we're not able to play back Trio Medieval and Saltarello's wonderful recording of this piece. However, we advise you strongly to check it out on the major streaming platforms or on the link provided with the episode. At the end, we'll instead listen to an excerpt from Cantaloupe Music's 2017 release performed by Melissa Hughes, Jamie Jordan, Kirsten Solek, Nadia Sirota, Gabriel Cabezas and Chris Thompson. Just your right hand And my beloved And my beloved Hi, I'm David Lang. I'm a composer and I live in New York City. And my name is Lynn Andrea Fugelset. I live in Oslo in Norway and I'm a musician, a singer in the Trio Medieval. The story of my relationship with Trio Medieval goes way back. You know, these are longtime friends and it goes back many years to a project that I did with my best friends, Michael Gordon and Julia Wolf, And the three of us are composers in New York, and we started an organization called Bang on a Can. So we got a commission to make a project. We decided we would make this kind of um, apocalyptic oratorio about the world we lived in called Shelter, and we needed singers. And we were looking it around, you know, throwing out names of singers and trying to figure out um, who could do this thing. And we used to have record stores back then. I mean, can you remember what record stores were like? You go into them and you hear things by accident. You know, you go in and you see the record covers. They look really great. You check things out. Um, I walked into Tower Records, which was the big record store in downtown New York, and in the contemporary music room, they were playing this beautiful music, right? It was this kind of angelic singing, and it was really fantastic. And I I remember going over and checking out what it was and seeing, here are these singers I don't know called Trio Medieval. And then I got in touch with you, and I don't think that you knew who we were either, right? That's right. We hadn't heard at that time about Bang on the Can. So what we did was to contact the Oslo Contemporary Music Festival Ultima. That time it was Geir Jonsson who was the director. And we said, you know, have you heard of Bang on the Can? Is this, oh yes, he said, oh yes, you should definitely get in touch and get, definitely say yes to this project. And so we did, and we have never regretted that. <laughs> Me either. The idea for this piece, just after Song of Songs, um, was not my idea. So the idea was um, from the commissioner. There's a fantastic music series in in Ireland run by this organization, the Louth Contemporary Music Society, and they've commissioned all sorts of great people. Um, 
Arvo Pert and Terry Riley and um, all these amazing composers, you know, old and, and young and famous and unfamous. And, um, and their director, um, Eamon Quinn, who I didn't know, got in touch with me and said, we have an idea for a religious program. We would like to commission pieces from composers that are based on the biblical Song of Songs. And my first feeling about this was, um, you know, I already have a setting of the Song of Songs. You know, I, I wrote a piece for um, Ars Nova Copenhagen um, called For Love is Strong, which was, I thought, my definitive take on how to go through the Song of Songs and make something new out of it. So I sort of tried to talk my way out of doing this project, um, but I ended up doing it, and I found another way to um, to do this text, which was really interesting. I will also say that um, I didn't choose the musicians either. You know, I, I think that um, Eamon knew that I had worked with you guys before and thought that I would enjoy working with you again, and in that he was right, which was really great. But my way through the text was... Um, you know, I, I, I had a sort of religious background, not a fanatical religious background growing up, but I had a moderate, moderately fanatical, um, if, if you can say such a thing, religious background growing up. And I was always interested in, you know, kind of what these um, biblical texts can mean to us now. You know, they're sort of um, still present, and I think about them all the time. You know, literally, I do. So, um I want to find ways to invent new pathways through um, these old texts. And the one I found for the Song of Songs for this piece was if this piece, which of course in the Bible is this incredibly sensual um, uh, relationship of these two lovers, it's supposed to be a metaphor for our relationship with God, right? And so, at least to religious people, um, I mean, to people who are not religious, you can just read it and just think it's, um, you know, it's just about people making out. But um, but it actually, you know, to religious people, there's something higher about it, and that kind of paradox is really interesting to me. So, what I thought was, if it's really about man's relationship to God, then maybe the things which are mentioned, which are just in passing, an arm, a comb, you know, a voice, uh, these these are actually divine attributes. You know, we're supposed to read them deeper. And so I thought, I'm just going to list everything in the order it appears um, as, as if it's a divine attribute, and I'm going to assign it to one lover or the other. And one lover um, will have um, the statements, just your beginning each list, and the other will have and my. And there's a little more formal stuff that goes in there, but that's basically it. I just made a list thinking that um, if these are really religious things, then I should treat them all individually and treat them with um, a certain kind of sacred respect. And that's what I tried to do with the music, too. There's a little refrain in the piece, which is on the word hour, because the lovers describe most of the things in terms of what each one has or what the other one, what each one sees in the other. And there are only a few moments where they talk about things that they share. Our sister, our roof, our rafter. And so um, that comes back. Um, as a refrain in the text, but it only happens a few times because most of the text um, is about the things that each one, you know, has or sees. 
not much happens in this piece and not much happens in a lot of my pieces. And so a lot of what I do is just find something and then repeat it over and over and over again. And then the, the problem is how do you keep something that you're repeating from um, just repeating exactly? You know, you have to think of a way to, um, to make it so that every repeat can feel fresh or it gets very stale. And maybe for some people this piece is already stale, but, you know, at least to me what I try to do is to invent little rhythmic games that make it so that every time something happens um, it might have the capability of feeling fresh. So one thing that happens in this piece is that I hide where the downbeat is. So there's a bass drum that comes in, and you always feel like the bass drum is where the downbeat is. But it's actually always in the middle of the, the measure, and it only happens where the singers land on the, the spoken accent in English. So the text is really telling you where the accents go, but the meter actually comes from where all the singers come in. So the tension between what's regular, which is where the singers start each phrase, and where the accent is changes every meter. And then there are other things that happen too. There's a, um, there's a little glockenspiel note that comes in, and every measure it comes in slightly differently. So I try as much as possible to make it, you know, um, sound really simple, but be as really difficult to play as possible. And and maybe, um, Lynn, you can say something about um, is does that make it harder, or does that make it um, does that make it like um, impossible for you to fall asleep while the while you're singing? Or uh, I think that's uh, the wonderful thing about this very min minimalistic piece that there are slight small changes all the time that keeps it uh, interesting and it's all, all little surprises here and there and uh, it's just a lovely piece it's quite difficult the way of putting the glockenspiel in different places each time in the first second or third beat of the last tr triad or something uh, so it's a bit difficult and it keeps us uh, tiptoeing and uh, keeps the nerve and keeps the concentration that we really have to make sure really not try not to listen to the glockenspiel i think because um it can get a bit hard then to actually hit the first beat in the next bar but um oh it's it's such a lovely piece i i re it's definitely one of my life's top 10 pieces or going to an uh, what do you call this the desolate island piece I gathered some um, comments from uh, from my colleagues, uh, you know, Anna and Jürgen Lovisa, who has also um, been performing this, and they would really like to say something too. And uh, what Anna said is that uh, of this piece is one of the few pieces where she gets goosebumps performing it. You know, that doesn't happen very often. And uh, she says it's it's very minimalistic, but still feels like you are part of something very big. It just grows and grows, and it's it's such a lovely sensation to sing it. And our alto singer, uh, Jorun Lovisa, she said that David has succeeded in filling the pauses in the piece with tension and excitement all the time. You know, what I think what I'm really hoping to do with these tiny little changes is so that everyone listening changes their metabolism, and you just listen more carefully, and you listen more um, more closely, and and the tension that you would normally get in a piece that, um, you know, like a Mahler symphony that goes from loud to soft to fast, you know, and has this incredibly wide range of emotion, 
I'm hoping that this piece can have that exact same wide range, but just on a really, really, really narrow scale. And you have to change yourself in, as a listener to get to that scale. I, I listen to a lot of music which, in which nothing happens, you know, and it's really great because then I can meditate or I can space out. I don't think this is music that you space out in. Singers, actually, what they do when they sing is they express who they are. So I found that there's a very limited way that you can um, tell people, can you sing with a straighter tone or can you sing with less vibrato or can you be more quiet or whatever, you know, because every singer is an individual. And so when you write for them, you are writing for um, a, a kind of personality, you know, you're writing for, um, for who they are. It's not like with a violin where you can just say every violin is pretty much the same and every violinist knows how to do the same kind of repertoire. You know, every singer is unique and there's a kind of music that makes that singer individually sound great and there's a kind of music that's going to make that singer, you know, sound not great. And so the trick when you're writing with singers is to learn who they are and to figure out um, what they do. And so one of the great gifts for me of working with Trio Medieval is they've recorded all of this incredible music. They've specialized in music from, you know, this incredible folk music and incredible medieval tradition. And, um, and so I knew before I started working with them that I would fit. And so that was really important. And the other thing which is really interesting about this piece is that because the recording was so widely available and it was used in the film and people liked it and, you know, um, it sort of set the performance standard for everybody else in the world who sings this piece. I don't think anyone now singing this piece um, would want to sing it who has a giant warbly um, vibrato voice, you know, because there's now a performance practice. Um, about how to do it, but I but I know from from writing opera, you know, which is really where my heart is, um, that the trick of writing for singers is um, is finding out who they are and what they do. And so, um, if I'm writing for singers who um, have vibrato as part of what you know as part of their um, constitution, I, I write a different kind of music. I mean, and just is also really cleverly written for our uh, voices. It's uh, it's really in the best range and very comfortable range for a piece that actually lasts for almost 15 minutes. It's really comfortable to sing where it's like that. And I'm lucky enough to be in the middle, uh, which, uh, which I usually am and uh, surrounded by lovely colleagues, you know, on top and bottom voice. So I'm, I, I think I'm the lucky one here. I would really like to thank Trio Medieval and I'd like to thank the, um, the other performers on this recording because um, I, it, it really, um, you write a lot of music in your life and you don't know um, necessarily where it's going to go. And this piece um, really turned out to be special for me. And I really appreciate the musicality and the hard work of everybody who um, did such a great job. And um, I really appreciate it. Just your love. Just your Just your anointing oils, just your name, just your chambers, just your love, and my mother's sons, and my own vineyard, and my soul, just your flock, just your 
Just your name. 
Just your two breaths.